great to be back together this week. We have the privilege of coming back and uh, considering what is probably the most profound passage on the incarnation in the entire Bible. Uh, This is part two of the passage that we began to look at last week. So you can open your Bibles up to John chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 14 to 18 again this morning. John 1, 14 to 18. And let's read the passage. Beginning in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. As I was studying this passage, particularly when I was at the point of studying verse 18, about how Christ Jesus has explained the Father, there was an interesting video pop-up ad on my computer, and it was sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, normally, I'm I'm like you. I pay little attention to ads. I X them out. I I get rid of them as quickly as possible. But the title of this ad caught my eye. The title was this, God has more to say. God has more to say. And I was intrigued enough by that title to allow the ad to run its course for a couple of minutes. In the meantime, I glanced down to the first sentence of the description below the, the video, and it said this, The Bible was not God's final word to humanity. If you pray and seek His word, you will find He has much more to say to you. And then at the end of the video, it said these words. God has more to say, not only because changing circumstances require new responses, but because an eternal God still has much, much more to teach us. And I immediately thought to myself, what a profound degree of irony that I'm experiencing right now. I'm literally in the act of studying verse 18 in a passage that teaches that the one and only God in the bosom of the Father has made God known, past tense, a completed act. And then in the exact same moment, I have this other source telling me God's continuing to make Himself known. He's continuing to reveal Himself. There's much, much more coming today. And therefore, John 1.18 shouldn't really say he has explained God, but rather he is explaining God, present tense. He, he continues to explain God. Well, what we're going to eventually see in our passage for today is that God's revelation is full and it is final in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We just read it in verse 18. He has explained God, but we are getting ahead of ourselves a bit because that's the conclusion of the message. We're we're in verses 14 to 18. If you remember from last week, if you were here, we're looking at six realities about the divine word stimulating our worship this season. Six realities about the divine word. We looked at the first three last week. By way of review, first we saw the embodiment of the word, verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word, as in the same word as verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, so the one who was eternal, the one who was existing when time began, this one became flesh. 
And the Word was with God, so the one who was in eternal, close-range, intimate fellowship with God. This one became flesh. And the Word was God, the, the one who was equal with God, thereby divine Himself. This one became flesh. He became one person with two natures. And we talked about last week, Jesus Christ is no less God because of His humanity and no less human because of His deity. Remaining what He was, God, He became what He was not, human. This is the embodiment of the Word. Then secondly, we looked at the existence of the Word. Notice verse 14, and dwelt among us. So this divine Word took on human flesh and had a historical existence. He dwelt among us. He took up His residence among us. Didn't just appear for a few minutes or a few days or on some uninhabited island that no one knew about. No, He came and dwelt among us and gave us a preview, a foreshadowing of the eternal state where God Himself will dwell among His people. Well, then thirdly, we looked at the esteem of the Word in the last part of verse 14. Notice what John says. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not merely referring to physical sight there, but the eyes of the heart, so to speak. We beheld Him with the eyes of our We saw everything that He wanted us to see. His love, His mercy, His wisdom, His knowledge, His power, and just list off the attributes. John says we saw it. We mentioned last week that this is one of the fundamental differences between Christians and everyone else when it comes to Jesus. We see glory. Glory as of the only God sent from God, while others who don't have the eyes of their hearts opened just see a man. To see a mere teacher, a moral example. Some are hostile to Christ. Some are just indifferent or apathetic, but all of those are evidences that they don't see. They don't see Christ the way he is. Notice how John qualifies the, further, the, the glory further here. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. We talked about the, the Old Testament counterpart to that. Exodus 34, 6, where the Lord reveals his glory to Moses. The Lord gives a sermon of his own glory. And, and the, the summary of that sermon is he describes himself as a God of loving kindness and truth. Or in New Testament language, grace and truth. And so Jesus, when the Son of God comes and takes on human flesh, what John saw was that. He saw Christ Jesus full of grace and truth. Well, that moves us now to the rest of our passage for this morning. Carrying over our outline from last week, we're now looking at the fourth reality. The fourth reality about the divine word that will stimulate our worship this Christmas season, the eminence of the word, the eminence. That is to say, his supremacy, his high rank. John 1, verse 15. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The John here, at the beginning of verse 15, is the prophet more commonly referred to as John the Baptist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In this gospel, John refers to him simply as John because he never refers to himself. He's the disciple whom Jesus loves, so he doesn't have to make a distinction between himself and John, John the Baptist. But he also doesn't focus on John as the Baptist, but John as the witness. 
the testifier, the, the prophet. In either case, this seems to be a parenthetical, abrupt insertion here, doesn't it? Verse 15. We, we might be tempted to think that verse 15 is a, a mistake. It's an accident, but this is not the case. The apostle and author John has a particular burden with regard to John the prophet. He doesn't want his ministry minimized, but he also doesn't want him worshipped. He doesn't want him exalted. And the reason it's necessary is because despite John the prophet's best efforts, some of his followers fell into that tendency. You can read about in John three twenty-two and following where some of John's own disciples were insecure and had ministry jealousy that more people were going to Christ than to John. Also in Acts 18 and Acts 19, you can read about one occasion in each of those chapters where there were believers, but they had stopped with John and his baptism. They hadn't gone on and realized it was preparing people for Christ. It was pointing people to Christ. They just stopped and they were stuck with John and his baptism. Well, the apostle John, an author of this gospel, has to bring clarity to those issues. And he wants his audience to understand John and his ministry accurately. And, and so he brings out the greatness of John appropriately, the greatest prophet to ever live, but also wants to make his limitations known. And he's already done this. Verse 15 isn't even the first time. Look at verses 6 to 8. Right in the middle of the glories about the divine word, verses 1 to 5, he sticks in this section. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, we would ask John the author, why? Couldn't you have saved that for after you're done talking about the divine word? Well, what John felt compelled to do, even here in the prologue, was to provide a contrast between John the prophet and Christ Jesus, the divine word. So the issue was so important at that time that John felt compelled to include it here. And notice how the contrasts come out. Notice verse 6. There came a man. So there came a man. The divine word simply was. But here there came a man. He came into existence. Furthermore, the divine word was God. John is just a man. So you can see how the contrast is starting to come out. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Why did he have to say that? Notice verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Why is he emphasizing that? Because some were misunderstanding and thinking, John's the light. We've got to follow John. Into verse 7, so that all might believe through him. He's just an instrument. He's pointing people to Christ. He's not the object of trust. The divine word is the object of trust. All right, so you can see the apostle and author of John is writing against that tendency. He's writing against that error, <clears throat> and the same is true in verse 15. John's been dead for a long time, and he wants to use his own testimony. He wants to quote John the prophet to demonstrate his subordination to Christ, his lowly rank in comparison to Christ. So notice verse 15. John testified about him. And cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John takes a quote from the prophet John and just treats it as this, this is a summary of his attitude and his message right here. Where's this quote from? Look over at chapter 1, verse 24. We can see the occasion where this came out. 
chapter 124. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one you do not know. It is he who comes after me. But then he adds this little part in, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Jesus outranked John to such a degree in John's mind that he considered himself unworthy to perform the task of the lowliest servant in a household who would take off the sandals of the guests. Why did he have that perspective? Verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. All right, so the apostle and author John grabs that quote, puts it in the prologue to summarize John's ministry, to encapsulate everything that it's about. So let's go back to verse 15 now and consider the content. He who comes after me, what's he talking about there? Well, temporally, earthly. The prophet John was six months older than Jesus, so Jesus came after him in that sense. John's ministry was sooner than Jesus. Jesus' ministry came after John. So in both of those senses, he came after me. But then notice verse 15. This one has a higher rank than I, for he, imperfect verb, was existing. He didn't come into existence. He just was existing before me. So the point is he's preeminent because he's always existed. I came to be at a certain time, but he's always existed. One author noted, this is the difference between the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal, the original light of the sun and the reflected light of the moon. And that's what he confessed and lived by. The divine word came and was witnessed to, and the greatest prophet ever, John, recognized and proclaimed the imminence of the word. That brings us now, fifthly, to the excellence of the word. The excellence of the word. Notice verse 16. For of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Now you'll realize why liberal commentators want to say verse 15 was a mistake. It was just added in there because you can see verse 16 flows from verse 14, not verse 15. Notice this, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. So he truly did just add a parenthetical comment about John in there and then return to his argument. Verse 16 is the explanation of verse 14. He's full of grace and truth, and here's what we experienced based on that reality. We've all received grace upon grace. No longer just referring to the apostles, now it's the entire believing community. We have all received this grace upon grace. And that is a tricky phrase there. Most of your versions probably have something different for that word upon. Some of you have upon, others might have in place of, for, after. Translating it the way the NASB has it, grace upon grace, it would give us the impression that John is referring to to this, the accumulation of grace, the overflowing, ever-replenishing grace upon grace, the experience of the believer every second of every day. That's true theologically, but I don't think that's what John's referring to here. That little preposition, upon, can be translated and in many places is in place of. The idea of exchanging. This is a common New Testament word for substitution, even the substitutionary work of of Christ. 
So I like the translation grace in place of grace. Several of your versions do translate it like that. So what John is communicating here is a grace that comes to us in Christ Jesus replaces a grace that was previously given. What was the grace that was previously given? Well, he explains it in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. There's the first grace. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the second and more excellent grace. All right, so that is to say in the person and work of Christ Jesus, we have received a grace that transcends all previous expressions. Now, this has the potential to be a challenging statement for us, right? Because we might not tend to think of Moses and the law in terms of grace. Those two things, they seem antithetical to us, don't they? I want to spend a few minutes on this because of our tendency to view the law as graceless or void of, of grace. Granted, the point here is not about Moses and the law. It's about Christ Jesus. But I think we have to spend a few minutes on this because of the amount of confusion on this. The natural way to view the law of God uh, is to instinctively think about it this way. It's an invasion into human autonomy, right? A roadblock. It's a hindrance to my happiness, to my success. Coming out from the authority of God and His commandments is viewed as freedom, naturally. You can see Psalm 2 for an example of that. Furthermore, we also have a tendency to view the law as a strict standard, no mercy, no grace, just this relentless, severe standard hovering over the sinner with clouds of condemnation. You mess up once, you're done. Well, all of these ideas are at odds with how the Scriptures talk about the law of God. You don't hear any language from a biblical author like this, the law is bad, unjust. It's restrictive, it's destructive. No, there are negative statements about the law, but it's always in a context where the, the, uh, the person is misunderstanding its use, its function. They're trusting in it for their righteousness before God. Then you're going to see negative statements about the law. The law does become graceless to the legalist. The legalist. The legalist is not one who obeys the law, not one who insists that we have to obey the law of God. The legalist is one who tries to earn God's favor through their adherence to the law. I have to, I have to do this in order for God to accept me. That's the legalist. And if that's the attitude toward the law, it is graceless. It is nothing but condemnation. It is a curse. But that's not a problem with the law. Romans 7.12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even here in our passage, John is referring to the law as grace. Notice it's not a contrast. Notice verse 17 again. He doesn't say the law was given through Moses, but in contrast to that, grace and truth were given in Christ Jesus. No, that's not the contrast. Sinclair Ferguson helps us here. He writes this. The relationship John sees between grace and law is not antithetical, but complementary. Christ's ministry, grace and truth, reality, fulfills Moses' ministry, shadows, types. Now, you still might be struggling with that. How can the law be grace? That still didn't help me. 
How can Moses' ministry be classified as a ministry of grace? After all, it's clouds of judgment, it's wrath. That's the God of the Old Testament. Didn't have any patience. Punished Adam and Eve and the entire human race for one little sin. That doesn't sound like grace. Well, let's just note the Ten Commandments. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20. Let's do a quick survey here so we can come to appreciate that the law is gracious. The law is gracious. The Ten Commandments we're familiar with, but are we familiar with how they begin? Exodus 20, verse 1. Notice, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then the commandments are given. Which means what? The law came to a people because they already were the people of God, not in order to become the people of God. They were the people of God by His sovereign grace. Fast forward, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Why did the Lord narrow in and choose to set His favor upon that people, Israel? Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people to the Lord your God. You, I'm sorry, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There must be something special about them then. They must be significant. They must have inclined God's favor to them somehow. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. All right, so why'd you do it then? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. I love the logic there. Okay, why did the Lord love Israel? Because the Lord loved Israel. There's his answer. It wasn't anything in you or about you, nothing significant in you, Israel. The Lord chose to set his favor upon you. But you say, well, yeah, but that's because he was keeping his oath to that which he swore to the forefathers. Okay, why did he choose the forefathers? Why did he set his love on the forefathers like Abraham? Who was Abraham? A worshiper of idols, a man-fearer, a liar. There's nothing in Abraham's life that would have inclined God to be gracious to him. Furthermore, you ever notice how Paul defends the, the gospel of justification by grace alone? Through faith alone? How does he defend it in his letters? From the Old Testament. Look at Romans 4 for an example of that. You can see that Abraham and David, their experience of forgiveness and righteousness before God, that's in the law, in the Old Testament. Speaking of David, what about David's forgiveness for adultery and murder? Where did that come from? You remember he he was unwilling to confess his sin for several months. Finally, Nathan the prophet comes to him, 2 Samuel 12, 13, and David confesses to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned. How did Nathan respond? The Lord has put away your sin. What's that? Grace. Grace. What about the provision of sacrifices to atone for sin and the law for the worshiper to experience forgiveness? If you want a good word study, you can search forgiven and atonement in the book of Leviticus. And you're going to see many references that come up that are going to sound like this. The priest will make atonement for him with regard to his sin and he will be forgiven. That's in the law. 
an animal dies in your place. The Lord transfers your sins to the animal. The animal dies in your place. Substitution, that's grace in the law. So the point is, you can't read the law of Moses, you can't read the first five books of the Bible and not come away with the conclusion of what God revealed about himself to Moses. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, which is ironically in the law. Let me give you another reason why Moses and even the Old Testament prophets, why theirs was a ministry of grace. The fulfillment of what they wrote about was what? Christ. Christ. What was prefigured and pointed to in mere shadows in the Old Testament finds their ultimate expression and fulfillment in the ministry of Christ. One can't be absent of grace and pointing to a ministry completely full of grace. Look at John 5.45 for one example of this. Notice how Jesus Jesus makes sure that he's always showing how my ministry and message is consistent with Moses, not at odds with Moses. John 5.45, Don't think I'll accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Right? He's not presenting himself and his ministry contrary to Moses but finding similarities in it. All right, so back in John 1.17, the law is not opposite of grace any more than law is opposite of truth. Verse 17 is saying there was a manifestation of grace in the law, but it was incomplete. But in the person and work of Christ Jesus, it's complete. It's fulfilled. It's realized. Notice how John says it. The law was given through Moses. It didn't originate with him, but grace and truth came through him, realized in Christ Jesus, the NASB has it. Out of his own inherent perfections, a surpassing, more excellent grace. When he came, he outshined and he fulfilled all those previous expressions. Now, you might say, well, why bring in Moses at all? Why bring in Moses and the law? Doesn't that potentially confuse the issue, John? Well, John is anticipating an objection, one that we see happening throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. And it is because Moses was so highly esteemed by the Jews that they would never consider, they would never tolerate any teaching or anyone that came that appeared to be contrary to Moses. If you read the Gospel of John, you find the Jewish leaders are always trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And he's trying to say, no, no, no. It's continuous with that ministry. It's a fulfillment of Moses and his ministry. And so what John's doing here is he's showing not only was the ministry of Moses and Christ consistent with one another, it's grace in place of grace, but the ministry of Christ was far superior because all of those expressions now are fulfilled in Christ. Through Moses came shadows in Christ. There is the truth, the reality, the substance. And truth is going to be testified to over and over in this gospel, but the emphasis here is on grace, grace in place of grace. One author wrote this, there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And yet how often do we believe the contrary? My sin is greater than Christ's grace. His grace is more stubborn and persistent than your most stubborn sin in areas of weakness. He is more full of joy than you are of sorrow, more full of strength than your greatest weakness, more full of hope than your despair, and more full of life than your death. Even your death doesn't put you 
beyond the reach of his grace. He just gives you new life. Jerry Bridges wrote, Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good you're beyond the need of God's grace. I love that because it shows us Christ came to confront not only our sinfulness and provide an answer to that, but also our self-righteousness. Right? Christ solves the sinner's despair. I'm unworthy. I'm condemned. I have no hope. He solves that, but he also solves spiritual pride. Yeah, I'm pretty good. God accepts me the way I am. I'm not as bad as most people. Christ is a solution to both of those forms of unbelief. The incarnation is the definitive act of grace and truth. What we as sinners desperately need, Christ is full of, overflowing. This is the excellence of the divine word. That brings us sixthly to the exposition of the word. The exposition of the word. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now again, we... We might think that John here is giving another random comment. Verse 18, just why did you stick this in here, John? You just want to make sure we all are aware no one's ever seen God? Actually, this is a very fitting comment to verse 17. John just brought up Moses in verse 17. And what's interesting about Moses is that if any man in redemptive history could have claimed to have seen God, it would be Moses, Right? Granted, we can scan the scriptures, we can find that many had visions, there were theophanies, there were personal encounters with God, but no one saw God in his fullness. Every one of those were partial, and the same was true of Moses. Turn back again, Exodus 33, that's in the background of John 1, so we always have to be keeping this passage in mind. But look back at Exodus 33:11. This time we're going to focus in on what Moses saw or didn't see. Exodus thirty three eleven. Then the Lord used to speak to Moses, notice this, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. All right, well, if he's speaking face to face, wouldn't that mean Moses saw God? Well, no, this is an example of anthropomorphic language. God is spirit. He has no physical properties. He had not taken on human flesh at that point in human history, so... Uh, this is ascribing human attributes to God to convey meaning. All this is saying is there is personal communication, direct revelation from God to Moses. He, it, we know it doesn't mean he's seeing God in his fullness. How do we know that? Because Moses is not satisfied. Notice verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray, I pray you, show me your glory. So whatever face-to-face means, he's not seeing the glory of God in its fullness. Verse 20, but he said, you can't see my face for no man can see me and live. You can't see me as I am in my greatness, in my glory. But Moses did experience something. He did see something, didn't he? Notice verse 21, then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it'll come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What did Moses get? He got a glimpse, the afterglow of God's glory. But whatever that language is meant to convey, one thing is clear. He didn't see God in his fullness. 
It's a partial, incomplete view. Go back to John 1 now. John's speaking of the same reality we're seeing here with Moses. No one has ever seen God. It doesn't mean no one's got a glimpse of his glory like Moses. There haven't been theophanies. No one has ever seen God in his fullness, in his glory. So, is God unknowable? How can we know who God is and what he is like? This is why verse 18 is necessary. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Again, just like last week, don't get thrown off by that word begotten. It's not talking about divine procreation. It's talking about one and only, unique. The the only or unique one, God, who is in the bosom of the Father. Some of your versions might say son instead of God. That's a textual variant and one that's pretty evenly divided in the manuscript tradition. I actually think that it is theos. It is God that should be in the text and not son. First of all, John has not referred to Christ Jesus as the Son in this prologue. That doesn't come out until later in the gospel. But he has referred to him as the unique one, and he has referred to him as God. Right? Look back up at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he's ending the prologue in verse 18 saying that one, the one who is God and with God, he has made God known. A clear reference here in verse 18 to the deity of Christ, but also the unique position and relationship he has with the Father. Notice, he's in the bosom of the Father. That's the chest of a person. Humanly speaking, that is reserved for the most intimate and closest relationship. Children with parents, husband and wife. The language is indicating close, intimate relationship with the Father. You can't know any more. You can't be any closer is the idea. And this one unique God is continually at that place. He is continually. It's a present participle. He's there. He remains there. He's eternally there. Again, Moses and the account in Exodus is not far out of sight here because what did we read about Moses in Exodus 33:21? I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you won't see. Notice the contrast with the divine word. Christ. He's not at the Father's back, not far off, not catching a quick glimpse like a distant relative or a servant, not given a sneak peek. No, he's continually in the chest of the Father, face to face, seeing all there is to see, knowing all there is to know. John six forty six. Jesus said this, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He has seen the Father, referring to himself. Back to chapter 1, verse 18. This unique relationship, this unique position qualifies him to have a unique expository ministry. End of verse 18. He has explained him. Exegeomai. Exegesis, we get our word from. To bring out the meaning, to explain. Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to explain God because he is God and is continually with God. There's John's logic in the prologue. Pastor Joel James put it this way, God sends God to explain God. This is what makes the expository ministry of Christ Jesus unique because he didn't simply preach the word of God, although he did so better than any mere man has done in human history. 
But that's not what makes this expository ministry unique. He doesn't just explain and proclaim the Word of God. He explains and proclaims God. Jesus ascends the pulpit of his incarnate life and he says, watch me, you see God. Hear me, you hear God. I make God known. Look at John 7, 14. It's a theme that comes out many times, both in his language and then in his actions. He was under the impression and would even remind people, when you see these things, when you hear these things, you're seeing and hearing God. John 7, 14. But when it was now the midst of the feasts, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Everything he taught was from God. Also in his life, John 14, 8, his life. John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I have made known God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. What is God like? Look at Jesus in the incarnation. Now, with verse 18, you can better understand uh, what was happening in verses 16 to 17 in that comparison between Christ and Moses. Through Moses, it was revealed the Lord is abounding in loving kindness and truth. In the person and work of Christ Jesus, that very truth was realized, it was fulfilled. It is only in Christ Jesus, the God-man, that God can be true, just, and gracious, the justifier of sinners. We quoted John Piper last week on this. Grace and truth are realized in Christ Jesus because God is gracious to us and true to himself. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, he was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment not us. In any other religious system, you have a God who has to compromise one of those two. He's either gracious or he's just. He can't be both unless you have the God-man, Christ Jesus. A couple of more details to note back in chapter 1, verse 18. Notice that last phrase, and this is where we'll tie it into our introduction here. He has explained him. He has explained him. That's an emphatic statement. There's a little word in the original to emphasize it. It literally reads this way. This one, this one and no other, this one has explained him. Why can John say that? Because it takes God to explain God. It takes God to reveal God. And only the divine word, God himself, qualifies. Notice something else here. It's an aorist tense. In English, we call it a past tense. He has explained him. That's a completed event in the past. Very similar, a cross-reference you could jot down, Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. What's the significance of that? Jesus' ministry, his exposition of the Father, his making known of the Father is not ongoing today. There's nothing to learn about God today that Jesus didn't make known. His revelatory ministry of the Father is spoken of in terms of a completed event in the past. He has explained him. There's no personal revelation today coming from God. Here's what I'm like. Here's what you need to do. Here's new doctrine. That would imply what? Jesus failed. He didn't really explain him. 
He left something out, and God has to make up for that deficiency. Now, here's an objection to this that I think we have to deal with. Couldn't we make the argument that John himself is violating that? Is John operating consistently with Jesus making known the Father past tense when here's John 50 years after Jesus was on earth giving revelation, writing the word of God? Look over at John 14, 26. Jesus did account for this, by the way. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John sixteen thirteen. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So yes, revelation continued after Jesus left the earth, but that revelation of the apostles was the revelatory ministry of Christ. It was content that they were remembering of his. He was giving them the content. And in these passages, he's pre-authorizing, he's pre-authenticating the revelatory ministry of the apostles. And there were three indispensable characteristics of every apostle. First, eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Second, chosen by Christ. Third, the ability to confirm your message with miraculous signs and wonders. There are no individuals around today who qualify for even one of those, let alone all three, which is why there's no revelation today. It's why your New Testament ends in the 90s AD. Why? The apostles died off. It stopped with the apostles. So revelation is full and final in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He has explained God. Over the past two weeks, we've seen six realities about the divine word stimulating our worship this Christmas season. We've seen the embodiment of the word, the existence of the word, the esteem of the word, the eminence of the word, the excellence of the word, and the exposition of the word. As we draw to a close here, I just want to talk about why do we have to insist on these things? Why do we have to embrace them and, and believe them? Even if we can't exhaust all of, the, all of our curiosities and solve all the mysteries that are involved in some of these doctrines, what's at stake? What's at stake with this? Well, as we draw to a close, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul gives just a, a very succinct and clear gospel primer gospel refresher, and I thought it would be a good way for us to close. 1 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So notice that, one God and one mediator. All people without distinction must come to the one God through the only mediator between God and men. A mediator is someone who stands in the middle, represents both sides equally. And this is why Christianity is not just one option among many legitimate options. It is the only option. Only someone truly divine and truly human can effectively mediate between God and men. Only Christ Jesus qualifies for that. 
Sin has been committed by man. Sin must be atoned for by man. As sinners, if we try to atone for our sin, it's never sufficient because we're sinners. We don't qualify. That's why hell is eternal. Sinful man can't qualify, but that, that poses a huge problem. Why? Because only a human being can be a substitute for other human beings. So we need someone who's like us in every way except one, sin. We need a sinless human being to take our place. One author put it this way, If Christ the Redeemer had been only God, he could not have died since God by his very nature can't die. It was only as a man that Christ could represent humanity and die as a man. As God, however, Christ's death had infinite value sufficient to supply redemption for the sins of all mankind. If Christ is merely the highest created being, just the highest angel, the highest ranking creation, his death is meaningless. Meaningless. He's not a mediator. Not a mediator in that sense. His death has no value for us. But as the God-man, his death does have value. What is it? Notice verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Sufficient payment has been made. Anyone and everyone who wants to come to God through Christ Jesus, a sufficient sacrifice has been made. And that word ransom there, that is, that is the idea of a substitute ransom. That's not the idea of a ransom like in the movies where someone was kidnapped, they demand a million dollars, all right, I'll give you a million dollars and I'll give me the person that was kidnapped. No, this is a ransom that goes and takes the place. Let them go free, I'll take their place. It's that ransom. Notice, he gave himself as a ransom. He gave himself. That's the significance of what we've been talking about this week and last week. The baby in the manger that we love to sing about every year and appropriately so. We love the historical details of the incarnation. But that baby grew up and lived the perfect life that you and I could never live and died the atoning death that we couldn't qualify for, that we could never atone for on our own. Or as Paul puts it, God made him to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Christmas is about history and theology, right? And we, we can't divorce the two from, from the other. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for being merciful and gracious to us in the person and work of your Son. The question isn't, why is there only one way of salvation, but rather, why is there any way? And why are we included in that way? Thank you for loving us enough to reveal yourself in a way that doesn't consume us and rather causes us to draw near and worship you. We thank you for sending your son, the divine son, to come to the world and be slain on our behalf. And as that expression of grace and truth has now been realized, we can affirm that you are both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.